Chapter 7, Love of Life. I remember in my 20s reading, hearing, learning, well, really most everything I came to know and still have faith in today. I read every book I could find on health, healing, nutrition, disease, with a special focus on cancer. I was running scared from the history in my family, my neighborhood, the world. I truly felt I faced an imminent life of suffering, if not early death, and I was not even living next to a factory spewing chemicals, a landfill fouling the groundwater, or a mountain being mined. I was not one of the now 65 million refugees displaced from home, culture, and everyday needs for food, water, rest, and shelter. I was a white girl in a white neighborhood in the most so-called privileged nation in our world. There were far more differences than commonalities in my circumstances from the billions of others living. And still, I was scared to suffer. I was scared to die, afraid of the illness in my body, mind, and heart that I witnessed in the world. Why I, as many others of my peers, could not simply brush it off and get on with school, my career, marriage, children, life, as presented to me, was no grand heroics or enlightenment. I was not or do not see myself as particularly brave or courageous. Perhaps what I attribute my choices to is simply that I felt they were mine to make. To even have the idea, if not confidence, that we have choices is the blessing and the privilege. And along with that, there was equally an experience of this feeling, no choice. I was a girl, and as such, I very early on felt kind of, well, yes, alien if not repulsed by many of the definitions and treatments of such. I was not going to be labeled or defined more than what I discovered to be true. What a gift to receive at a very young age. And it went on from there. I was not going to be limited, defined at least inside, by where I lived, how much money we had or didn't have, where I went to school, or even how I looked. And of course, I was defined by such, along with my race, my religion, and my politics. That, perhaps, is what continually catalyzed me to think and live around as much difference as I could find or meet in my travels, my love affairs, my work in other cultures and countries. I felt most at home within the biggest mix of company, when in a small house, if not my sleeping bag and tent, when supporting those simply with the biggest hearts I could find. And so as I look back now, I know that the biggest risks I took were actually not traveling alone as a woman in remote places or landscapes, not skiing a glacier, or even interrupting a conflict turning violent. The big risks for me were actually, now don't laugh, getting married 
truly facing the fear that I would become a stereotypical wife, that I would lose my inner compass, that I would not have the courage, the heart, to be fully with another and not desert myself. The big risk for me was joining others in the purchase of Three Creeks to enter into the mainstream norm of living on stolen land, to dare to be in and co-create more beauty when others, whose land it truly was, were living on a reservation close by. How could I? Why should I? Dare think or dream that I could find a way to go beyond that story, to live into a new one that I could only discover by crossing that threshold. And then, now, another risk for me, to write stories with me at the center. Far more risky than all of the years I have spent listening, ever so slowly learning to listen to the stories of others. I was willing to have mine changed by such, informed and shaped by the joy, pain, passions, histories, and even the politics of others. Broken open, time and time again, losing my own sense of purpose and meaning, home. And then, somehow, in that lostness, to find the spark of love and truth to continue. That, strangely enough, became my safe haven, knowing one-on-one or sitting in a circle. Healing happened in the listening. Finding so quietly and yet consistently a small difference that I had wanted to make. And so, too, that path was to be challenged by others and by myself, Resting in that was and is not enough. Rest only for so long. When recognizing on a larger scale, the suffering simply continues. The inequities are increasing, not the other way around. It's now almost 50 years since I first learned of other therapies, other responses to the disease of cancer. All of the billions spent searching for cures and the mainstream medical practices are about the same, and the disease more prevalent than ever. When I learned in my 20s, what I learned is still true, still real, still a perspective and worldview I pray for the courage to carry and live. Cancer is not just some foreign invasion of cells in the body. Such cells are always there ready within, for health or for disease. In 2000, I wrote this prayer, a prayer for a thousand years in a collection of such, by Elias Amidon and Elizabeth Roberts. Open the storage units. Unlock every second home. Distribute every safe box jewel and take down the fences so any may pass. Burn the cities of your past. Invite the wild to backyards and mark the dead with trees. 
Throw away your watches and take the time you need. Scatter the riches written in the ledgers of far away banks. Wash your eyes with water and look again. Plant the seed of your dream, your heart, your care. May your backyard be a garden for you, for me, for all beings. I remember opening that jewel box left by my mother. I found there two of her gold charm bracelets, and I found one of mine as well. I remember at various birthdays receiving a new gold nugget, a miniature birthday cake, a little house, even a paintbrush and palette with colors on it, so finely crafted. Everything about it was precious. And here, here they were. Here it was, locked away at best, now a memory bank. For months I kept these bracelets close to me. Knowing I would never wear them again, I entered into a deep inquiry about where, where they belong. They were gifts, gateways to parts of my life as well as my mother's. What now? One day the idea came to liberate them and me out of storage, out of memory, out of that culture and dream. I found a jeweler who said yes. He could melt the gold and make a cast for me of a dolphin ring that I had been gifted that then we could make more such rings with more gold. So I reached out to a number of my co-dreamers at the time. I hesitate to call them tribe, for respect of true tribes, I know. But the word friend or clan or community doesn't really even fit either. Our language once again is limited in touching on the truth of so many experiences and relations. Our actions when outside of the mainstream behavior risk being put into a cult category. Nonetheless, I proceeded with the invitation to my, well, I guess I'll call them co-travelers, to join with me and co-liberate any gold they may have hidden, ignored, stored away, checked their boxes, their storage units, to remember what was taken, to remember what was lost, and who was involved in the extraction of that metal. And then to ask if being with it in a different way, using it, transforming it, might be of interest, might offer a different new kind of value. Gold. It seems no mistake as I read this that a gold mine is now being proposed to be opened, to be dug, to be extracted, the gold, just 40 miles down the road from us. All 10 of the people I invited to put their gold in the cauldron and combined together, 10 golden dolphin rings were made. A new kind of marriage was initiated, a connection to a bigger story than the one we had originally been gifted. Inheritance is not a noun. It was and is a journey that we are all participating in.
Yesterday, I listened to one of my wise youngers, what I might call a sacred activist, Bronte Velez. They carried their story and work of transforming led to life. Guns melted into beauty. True medicine for our times. Those participating in such alchemy speak of the power, the empowerment that comes with it. Prayer is fortunately, in this case, not a stationary stance, but an embodiment and expression of a change desired. In such ceremony, we bring the prayer of transformation and action together. Bronte was joined in this conversation by one of their community who spoke of giving away 100% of their inherited wealth. The two were more than eloquent. They were relevant in their hearts, their sole purpose, one such as me listening might say. Morgan was not giving it all away to a guru out of fear or shame, devotion, or simply not knowing what to do. She was in her knowing, giving it where she knew it would serve and would be used in the bigger story to liberate wealth. As I listened, I felt the truth in that saying, that the next generation will go beyond us, at least beyond me, and with that I could take refuge in a breath of gratitude. These ceremonies, these prayers and actions, well, they, I think they do make a difference, one that can be felt by those involved and even by those who hear the story. The story goes out and rests in the fabric of life, there to inspire, to be watered, mirrored, remembered, new memories to replace some of the old charms. They serve as a different kind of medicine, not a cure or fix per se, but more like a watering hole, a place to be. Once there, even if for a moment, our cells in our bodies have an experience of health, wholeness, some kind of purity or purification can occur. If that time can be remembered, my sense is that there is far less room for disease. My search for belonging led to here, to find home in the dream, the prayer and action, even when I have had the chance of so-called beautiful homes in beautiful places. As I witness Muslim refugees doing their practices in the worst conditions of camps, under highways, in tenements, I sense that they too are finding home in the only way they can. In the best of circumstances and seemingly the worst, here we are. Every day there are 35,000 more displaced people, and that statistic is five years old. As Indigenous people walk now with others joining to save and reclaim their homelands, I have to wonder, what of those who are just now leaving? It is not a lie. It is true that I feel pathetic in the best possible ways, 
perhaps pitiful, as a Native Lodge leader I know so often says, that I cannot and am not able to relieve more suffering, that I have failed, that we, if that means you, we have failed, my generation, my culture, class, race, gender, me, to make the kind of difference so many of us have hoped for. I mean, what was I thinking anyway? A bit arrogant, perhaps. Oftentimes embarrassed by my suffering and illnesses, now simply human, I return to my Buddhist vow to do simply whatever I can to relieve suffering. I return to my Christian vow to love my neighbor and learn to love the enemy and return to my earth-sea vow to belong wherever I am as best I can. In a book by Thomas Cowan, I quote, Kinton's discovery that our blood reflects the mineral composition of the ocean led him to propose the idea that health can be defined as the state in which our fluids, including blood, are in their perfect state when they most closely mirror the composition of the sea. Wow, that one spoke to me in cancer and the new biology of water. It seemed confirming my longing to be near, if not in the ocean, when feeling ill in my heart, mind, and body with the world as it is. The ocean humbles me again and reminds me I just need to do to be my part in a much bigger story. May I love this life for what it is.